What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Logos Podcast. This is Max. This is Joey. And on today's episode, we have Professor Hire to talk about architecture, sacred architecture, and just its implications on culture in general. How are you, Professor? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. We're very excited to have you on, Professor William Hire. He's... Um, He's a professor of sacred architecture this semester at our seminary, so we figured that we would take advantage of the opportunity to get him on and have him share some of his wisdom with us. So we're super excited for this conversation. Thank you for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule to uh, to be here with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, we were wondering, just as we get into the episode, like um, if you, if we could begin before we start talking about sacred ar- architecture itself, like tell us about yourself, a little bit about your your life, your career, your family. I don't know if you have a family. I'm guessing you have a family. Um, yeah, just who are you? Well, I'm uh, 53 this 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 year. And uh, so, yes, I have a lovely wife and uh, six children. Wonderful. Wow. Uh, my oldest, Jane, is 24, and my youngest, Chloe, is 10, and there's a bunch in between. Yeah, hey, that's a big spread. Like They're going to be mad that I didn't all mention all their names. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and uh, I've lived here in Columbus uh, my wife and I moved back here from Washington, D.C. in 2002. Okay. Okay. So this will be our 21st year. How long did you live in D.C. for? Uh, we lived there for really only about a year. Okay. And before that, I was um, back at the University of Notre Dame, you know, right st- studying architecture. Is that is that where you did your studies at? That's where I got my master's degree okay. at the School of Architecture at at Notre Dame. All right. Was that a was that a positive experience? You you enjoyed Notre Dame? Absolutely. Uh, I had some of the greatest professors. Um, it was it came at the right point in my life because I had gone to a uh, an architecture school in New York City called Pratt Institute, and I was disillusioned by mm. the direction of architecture, mm. uh, also the direction that I was going in many ways. And I had a kind of conversion of heart uh, also on many levels. And uh, so I started to study architecture in, my, in the last couple of years at Pratt. And then after I graduated, you know, on my own. Yeah. And started moving in a direction that was pretty exploratory in terms of trying to get to the heart of what architecture was about. Mm. I knew that what I was learning at Pratt was good. It was, it's a great school. Um, but I knew that architecture was bigger than what they were teaching me. Okay. I'd go to the library and I'd see all these wonderful books on architecture that, you know, we, we may have just, uh, skimmed over in our, in our studies. And I said to myself, all this beautiful architecture and we don't know anything about it. And I'm going to get out of this school with a, yeah. a bachelor's of architecture and I'm not going to know anything about <laughs> The beautiful architecture of the world, sure. I mean, uh, because modern architecture schools are are ideological, they're ideologically mm-hmm. based uh, in in a form of uh, secular modernism, and so you're missing out on all the great um, uh, studies on classical and traditional architecture. Okay, if I could interject, I've got a couple questions based on everything you just said. Um, first, when you went to the Pratt Institute. In New York, you weren't originally stand, planning on studying architecture, or you were? I was, actually. Okay. I mean, really from the age of about 10, I was 
interested in architecture. Wow. That's awesome. My father came into my bedroom when I was 10 and I was sitting at my desk, you know, drawing a house. <laughs> and he, he said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, Bob years, the Builder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 10 years old. And, uh, and he said, well, you're, you're, you're good at drawing, you're good at art, and you're, you're good at math. How about being an architect? And so he planted the seed. And that was it. 10 years old, yeah. Were you a big Legos guy? Oh, yeah. Were you a Legos guy? Dude, I was not a Legos guy because I didn't have the virtue of patience, which I still haven't acquired. And so those little Lego pieces that I couldn't quite clip on just would make me angry. And I would be the guy that would throw it in the trash can. Mine and my brother's because he could do it and I couldn't and I would be mad at him. So anyway, that was a little bit of so, it. But that's okay. I've moved on. Anecdotal <laughs> story from my life. I was never, I didn't use Legos a lot growing up either. But when I was like 18, my little sister, maybe I was younger than 18, 16, 17. Anyway, she started getting into Legos and like fairy, like these sets that were just like so girly. But she would ask me for help and I would just get like lost. I would, I would get so into it. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, so there's something about it, building and like... Um, creating that is and, and, I th- and I, legos are such a it's, it's a rudimentary example but you were doing legos you were drawing you wanted to be an architect from the time you were young yeah you go to pratt institute and you are disillusioned you mentioned modern secularism the ideology yeah it's a um, secular unpack, ideology yeah, yeah unpack that for us a little bit well it's complicated yeah um <laughs> <laughs> my students are going to get a little lesson here before we get into that in the semester but uh really you know the period of the well let's let's start with the what was happening at Pratt okay so yeah. in the in the 1960s there was a coup uh of the faculty uh at Pratt Institute and the old guard uh which were architects that were trained in modernism uh, by some of the great architects from that period, Louis Kahn, Le Corbusier, uh, Mies van der Rohe, they were effectively ousted from the university. And a new generation of kind of, you know, upstart radical faculty came in and uh, slowly, I mean, not very slowly, actually, but fairly quickly, the school became known as an, a very avant-garde uh, school of architecture. And this is in the 60s? This is the 60s, yeah, the late 60s, early 70s. So with like, I'm guessing probably in conjunction with the Cultural Revolution and all, the, oh, yeah. all that stuff, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's sort of happening from my understanding kind of on a national level or on an international level, this this ideology started seeping into all sorts of academic um, institutions, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, but this, this um, ideology had been in the schools of architecture really since the 1930s and 40s. Oh, okay. really? Yeah, so um, there's a, there's a long history there, and what happens by the time I'm at Pratt is that Pratt has this reputation of being a great modern design school, mm-hmm. and so young people are attracted to it. Mm-hmm. I'm attracted to it because it's highly ranked, and yeah. it's in New York, and who doesn't want to study architecture in New yeah, York? Yeah, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> and... I'm, you know, kind of smitten by the whole thing. It's very romantic. I enjoy it. But I'll tell you, I had no idea what they were trying to teach us in the design studios because every teacher had a different kind of view of what architecture should be. And they were completely unrelated and there was no grounding in any real uh, rules of architecture. It was Mm -hmm. really very subjective. And it was based, you know, on 
a lot of the whimsical subjective ideas of that generation that you know uh, came in to create this avant-garde school so this is the thing we're here on radio or in a podcast yeah we're not showing slides uh it's really hard on a radio program or on a, in a podcast i keep calling it shows my age right i'm sorry i'm still <laughs> saying radio but architecture is a visceral and visual subject yeah so when I talk about modernism and avant-garde and I start talking about terminology in sacred buildings, uh, for a lot, a lot of it's going to just kind of be unabsorbed yeah. by the listeners because uh, the language is unfamiliar, a mm -hmm. lot of it. So yeah. I'm going to try to keep to some basic terms as yeah. we go through this yeah. podcast. but For I our can, sake as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> During class with the seminarians, you know, I'll get done with a little talk on whatever Romanesque architecture or or ancient Roman architecture, the temples, and I'll look at them and I'll just say, "Are you following me? Do you do you, do you understand those terms that I just used?" And everybody's like, "Yeah, yeah absolutely, no, yeah, no, for no, sure, for we're sure. right here." <laughs> so I, I get how um, difficult it can be um, to uh, to talk about architecture without the visuals at hand yeah yeah and even then the language is so unfamiliar to so many people today that you can have the visuals you can have the discussion and how much of it is really going to be absorbed so it's something that i've been working on and yeah. i know a lot of other architects especially classical architects that um have learned to master this way of of expression of architecture wow by, so yeah Two, two things for you, Doctor, or sorry, Professor. One of the things um, is that most, you're right, I think most of the people's encounter with architecture is very limited, maybe through like a science textbook or a history textbook or something from their elementary school. The Empire State Building comes to mind or some other fast food McDonald's arches, golden arches, or maybe that's the extent to which yeah. they've actually considered architecture, architecture important in one's life. Um, so I think your, your observation is, is right on about that. I mean, many people, including ourselves, who have the great privilege of studying in a more classical forum, um, haven't considered architecture very much or as, as relevant. Um, so I, yeah, I want to acknowledge that observation. And then the second thing that I had a question about was in regards to, you said you were disillusioned when you went to Pratt, right? So did you enter the um, architecture program with a Catholic view, with a classical view of, our, of sacred architecture, architecture in general? Or how did that, why did you say you were disillusioned? I guess What's, what happened there and, and prompted you to move elsewhere? I think the disillusion was more rudimentary okay. uh, on, a, on a base human level uh, and spiritual level. Because anyone who goes into a subject matter that is unfamiliar, even though you have this great desire, uh, a lot of that comes from a kind of romantic sensibility. Mm -hmm. I'm 14, 15, 16 years old. I'm gearing all of my studies in high school for a program of architecture yeah. in college. So I'm taking physics. I'm taking oil painting. I'm taking sculpture. I'm taking art history. I'm taking calculus because these are the courses that I think and other people tell me are going to be required for being a good architect. Mm -hmm. So there's rules to follow uh, in order to get there. And I, I have a good portfolio. I get accepted to Pratt on this portfolio of, of drawings and paintings. I go into the program and there are all these classes on you know, history of architecture and uh pragmatic studies in mechanical engineering and structural engineering and so on. 
the design studios that we have are where they're supposed to teach you how to design buildings. Yeah. The language of design. And I was looking for, again, sort of in my subconscious and in, in just sort of a very base human way, I want to go into a program where they're teaching me rules mm. about how this is supposed to be done. Right. Well, I found out over the course of, you know, two or three years after trying different design professors, because you're allowed to take different professors for each semester and really getting a, a lot of experience with different points of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's part, that was part of the Pratt model was, you know, you could dabble in different aesthetics or different styles of architecture, different ideologies for that matter. Mm. And I found that I wasn't being taught any rules about architecture. All I knew is that I was being hit over the head with dogma about what modern architecture is and why it surplant, uh, you know, why it uprooted and did away with traditional architecture and why it was the language of architecture that was here to stay and that the traditional buildings and that language of architecture could never come back was not allowed to come back Mm -hmm. and i thought to myself i don't understand the antagonism yeah i'm just a kid from upstate (laughs) new york i don't understand why these professors are so defensive right Mm. what are they talking about Mm -hmm. well over the course of the next couple years because you know architecture school is a five-year bachelor's okay i didn't know that now I do. I go to I go to, I take a semester abroad in London. And now let me back up. I was there was a class that I was told by classmates I should take and it was this Italian architecture professor who taught what they called a rationalist approach to architecture. Mm-hmm. And so very difficult class, very intensive. We had sketchbooks that we had to keep uh, and we filled them up with, you know, pen and ink drawings uh, every week. Wow. And a lot of rigor. And I loved it. There were rules, you know, there was there was discipline, there were rules. And his language of architecture was based on an idea of mathematics and physics that made sense to me on a, a very simple level. That is, you've taken the math that is in inherent in nature, mm-hmm. right? vector forces, physics, uh, gravity having an effect on certain shapes. Mm -hmm. Mostly it was like structural engineering. Mm -hmm. But that was the basis of his look of his architecture was on these sort of engineering diagrams. It was the best set of rules I had had to that date. And so I latched onto it. It was something. It was principles. It was structure. It it was form. Yeah, wow. There were rules there. Well, of course, I go through this, and I come back from a semester in London, and I'm disillusioned again because I think to myself, and of course, this is all growth in wisdom and understanding. And I said, there's got to be more to architecture than just rules about vector forces and gravity and ge- and engineering. And it didn't take long for things to kind of come together for me to understand that I was going to have to learn about beauty in architecture mm. on my own. It wasn't about rules. It wasn't 
so much, well, it wasn't so much about rules. It wasn't so much about uh, mathematics and engineering and function, you know, the things that we were all taught at Pratt, which were important and are. But I said to myself, there's got to be more. Where does beauty come from? All these buildings that I see books on in our beautiful library at Pratt, where, where do these ideas come from? So I started studying on my own. And by the time I graduated, I had found a job in Columbus uh, with a company that did more traditional architecture. And I thought that's a good place to start. So much to the surprise of a lot of my classmates, I got up and left New York City uh, to go to the Midwest to be an architect. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You should go um, to the South. (laughs) I hear it's a much better place to live. I don't know about all that. Um, Were you Catholic as all this was going on? How long has the Catholic faith been a part of your life? Well, I am a cradle Catholic. You are a cradle Catholic. Um, I went to an all-boys Catholic boarding school in New England. I went to New York and uh, had a little uh, too much freedom. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I think that part that was part of what was driving this whole, the questions that were being asked, huh. was where is all of this going? Uh, it, none, none of it had any kind of anchor in my heart. Yeah. It made sense, you know, these mathematical formulas, the all the things I was telling you about. But, you know, in my relationships, in my personal life, in my relationship with God, there was also that question, the questioning, where are you going with all of this? What does it mean? What happened to that faith that you grew up with? What are you going to do with that? So God was working on me. I'll never forget one evening I was coming back from a job I had in Manhattan and I, and I, I I'd recently broken up with a, a, a nice girl and I went into St. Vincent Ferrer on the Upper East Side, which was near where I worked. I went in, I hadn't been in a church for probably seven or eight months hmm. and I knelt down and I just started to cry. I don't know why. Hmm. It was kind of uncontrollable. And it was God trying to bring me back. I mean, you know, it, six or seven months out of a college, you know, life. Uh, uh, but, you know, he, he recognized that he wanted me for something. And he was like he does for everybody. Right. But yeah. He really knocked hard. And I got to say, this experience of kind of your conversion process-ish in college that you had is similar to a lot of stories when I talk to other people in regards to like, it's interesting how our Lord uses our passions to kind of yeah. awaken us to our hearts. Yeah. Our, our gifts, yeah. our talents are the things that we long for. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mine was in college similar. It was, you know, but it was the truth. It was to poetry. It was to music. St. Augustine. Philosophy. Philosophy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Still very much my passion to this day. You with, was with architecture with Joey was i don't know what it was with me (laughs) joey doesn't have a heart actually and so we don't really know how but my point being that i mean this is how our lord worked and this this is beautiful to hear this from you to to affirm that like he entered somehow through this weird drama that was happening in your life that then propelled i assume now your work of what you do to a certain extent at least a prompting then yes so you discovered beauty you discovered or you went on on a quest for 
beauty and why, how is that a part of architecture? And like, tell us about that. How, what, what'd you find when you started that quest? I found a lot of questions. <laughs> I, I'll ha- I have to also say that, you know, that these points of conversion, you know, they're, they're, for many people, they multiply. Yeah. It's not one and, you know, like St. Paul being knocked off the horse, right? This, <laughs> right. this was a multi point. Yeah. Um, it's gradual. I wouldn't say it yeah. was a conversion. You say conversion ish, right? Because yeah. the, I mean, that's really, I think that everybody goes through this in some way or another, yeah. right? At different levels. But, there were other points along the way. I'll never forget one Christmas I was home visiting my father upstate New York. And I went for a walk uh, where there's lots of snow mm-hmm. up there. And I felt, um, I, I sort of felt that I was having another one of those moments. Mm-hmm. And something told me that I wasn't supposed to be helping uh as a as a design instructor you know back at pratt i hadn't graduated yet but i was i was a teacher's assistant in one of the classes and i felt this um warning that i really shouldn't be involved in this class anymore because it was promoting you know ideology that i felt i don't i didn't understand it yet or why i was against it but it just it it certainly wasn't going in the right direction. Hmm. So that's that's another example of you know points along the way where you're you're being converted. And I would say that the search for beauty to get you get back to your question, yeah. that search for beauty was something that continued to grow in me without me even really understanding that that's what I was doing. Hmm. There were feelings, there was history that I had learned, there was new there were new things that I was learning, and it was all coming together from mm. different points. And that included people that were coming into my life yeah. you know, and being great influences on me. For sure. Yeah. So how'd you end up at Notre Dame eventually? That's where, cause that's where you ended up getting your master's degree. Um, and then presumably from there setting off on the professional career that you've embarked upon. So how'd you, how'd you end up there? And that is a great segue because one of the persons that was most influential in my search for beauty was, uh, a now deceased um, mentor of mine named Thomas Gordon Smith. Thomas was the founder of the classical architecture program at Notre Dame. Uh, oh, in wait ni- a second. I've, yeah, I swear I've heard that name. Yeah. Thomas Gordon Smith. Wow. In 1989, when he founded the school. No kidding. And when I was in Columbus, after I left New York, and was on this road to beauty. Yeah, yeah. Trying to figure out what it was. <laughs> Um, a mutual friend of ours in New York, uh, Father George Rutler, uh, who I, who was my uh, spiritual director when I was uh, in my last years of being in New York, he said, you know, you really should meet uh, Thomas Gordon Smith, who's at Notre Dame. And so I decided I was going to write a letter because I was searching for a new home. Mm-hmm. I was in Columbus. I was working for a good firm. We were doing traditional architecture, I was able to express myself uh, and learn about some aspects of classical, beautiful architecture. But I wanted more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, Father Rutler uh, helped me along the way, and I was planning to write this letter to Professor Smith. 
next thing you know, I'm, I, I receive a postcard. Uh, and it was from Professor Smith. And it, I still have the postcard from <laughs> 1995. And it says, you know, Dear William, a mutual friend of ours asked that, at, or told me that you were interested in our program. I'd love to meet you, you know, signed Thomas. And it was clearly a sign. Yeah. Yeah. So I put the letter I started away and I, I uh, pulled out a new piece of paper and I wrote him a new letter and said, you know, because back then we wrote letters. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, yeah. what is this letter thing? Yeah, I wrote two letters yesterday, just so you know. Attaboy. I wrote a few emails yesterday. There just you so go. You know. <laughs> so we, long story short, we, we meet um, and I'm, I wanted his guidance on where to go from here. And I was looking to work for a firm in New York or London or somewhere where I could really study these things. Now I'm really hungry. Now I'm really starting to see that there are all these parts of architecture and sacred architecture, by the way, is coming into the picture at this point. Okay. So up to this point, have you been primarily doing just, I don't even know what you would call it. It, it was just theory and design. Okay. It, it didn't matter what kind of building, what typology it was. It gotcha. was just theory and design. The stuff I did in Columbus when I first moved was the, uh, was residential work, um, houses, plan communities. But I go to meet Thomas Gordon Smith and we sit down and I said, tell me where I should go because I really want to learn more and I'd like to work for a firm uh, that, that uh, does beautiful architecture. And he said, well, you know, here are these firms. You, I had a list and he said, these are all good firms. And, and he said, but why don't you just come work for me? Wow. And it was a watershed for me because I decided uh, to go work for him. My wife and I got married that fall. We packed up uh, and moved to South Bend, Indiana in November. Oh, boy. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had a wonderful period of you know roughly five years where I was completely inspired and moved by this man. Mm. Um, who taught me what architecture really is. Uh, not even so much by classes that he taught, but just by who he was. Mm. He just radiated uh, what architecture really was supposed to be. And he and I had a relationship that um, uh, helped to uh, create the designs and drawings and get built uh, a number of Catholic churches mm. and a seminary and the start of um, Our Lady of the Annunciation of Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. I saw that. So, I saw I, As I was going through your stuff um, before this episode, I saw that monastery. It's gorgeous. Beautiful, absolutely, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So this man, this mentor of yours, you said that by his life and his example and his teaching, he, he taught you what architecture is and what what sacred architecture is at that you were building churches and seminaries and mm -hmm. monasteries. What did he teach you? <laughs> what, yeah. did he, what, what, yeah. what is architecture and, and sacred architecture? What, like, and why does it matter so much? Why should people care about the way that buildings look? At least that's right. A very embryonic conception. Like why do we, why should we care? Yeah. And, and, uh, this architecture, again, sacred architecture in particular is a complicated subject. So let's take this one step at a time. Mm -hmm. Okay for the listeners, because there's no way to say what sacred architecture is in one sentence. There's no way to say what architecture in general is. And I think 
from the time we've spent talking about my conversion-ish period and getting to this point and wanting beauty, I think that the listeners uh, understand because they've probably gone through the same sense. Right. They probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast if they didn't have some uh, innate desire for, for beauty in their life through prayer, through relationships with people in the church, through their family, through... Uh, study for through study, right? And so it took me years of developing um, wisdom and knowledge about architecture and sacred architecture to come up with <laughs> terms that I think people can understand. All right. The first in sacred architecture is that the church, and this is important, that the church is a sacramental. You have to think of the church like you think of a chalice. It is a sacramental. It's blessed. It's given over to sacred use only, just like a chalice. Okay, So it's special. Mm-hmm. It has been dedicated to that purpose. Therefore, when one enters a church, they need to understand that they are in this space, this building that's set aside for sacramental purposes. They're in a qualitatively different space. Yes. They're not just on the other side of a new wall. No, it smells different. It it should look different. Mm -hmm. It should bring you into this new reality. Right. right? Exactly. You're in a new reality, and that that reality that you've entered into is going to hopefully take you to another one, which is to come. The other Mm -hmm. concept that's important is that sacred architecture, churches, um, are supposed to be an image of Christ. Hmm. How many ways do we think of our churches as being an image of Christ? They're an image of Christ. Well, most people think of the cruciform shape of, you know, Notre Dame or mm-hmm. or some of the great monastery churches or cathedral churches of Europe. Even if I'm not mistaken, even St. Peter's for a while was in a cruciform and then extended out. Is that correct? In Rome? Uh, if it's not correct, tell him. Let me know because I'm not the expert. I just remember, he doesn't know anything. Yeah, I just remember kidding. in Dr. Graff's class when we were talking about this, there were the different levels to St. Peter's Basilica, and one of them was a cruciform at some point. It's a digressive point, so I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I, I could debunk that in okay, fair enough. a couple minutes. but Please don't. I'm not going to. <laughs> Thank you. But it's debunked. It's complicated. There were, there, yes. There's an original St. Peter's that, was, right. that was built uh, at the time of Constantine, and then... You know, it that eventually was taken down and replaced by um, Michelangelo's That's right. St. Peter's, which was actually a um, circular or Greek cross form mm. huh. um, as a martyrium, because wow. that's where St. Peter was yeah. buried. Uh, it was a, a, a burial site. And sure. the church used the circular temple form commonly over burial sites or martyriums or points in the landscape where apparitions occurred or miracles occurred. Wow. And that tradition goes back to ancient Greece. But along the way, uh, Michelangelo's original martyrium or, or burial chapel church wasn't big enough for pilgrims. And of course, during the Middle Ages, people were flocking to Rome mm-hmm. uh, to visit the uh, the bodies uh, of the saints. And so it was extended. And Carlo Moderno uh, in the 17th century added on um, the nave of the church. 
Mm. And of course, there were other great architects involved, like Borromini, uh, Francesco Borromini, and and uh, Bernini as well, and, and many others. So it developed into right. what you think today is a cruciform church, but it was originally not intended that way. Um, and there it just we go. Developed that way. So you're wrong. Yeah. So I stand, and that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you were. You were t- <laughs> But the church is an image of Christ, back to the cruciform. Right. You said what we typically think about is just the cruciform right. shape. Right. We think about the cruciform shape. Uh, we look at the plan and say, oh, of course, it's a cross. Well, Jesus died on the cross. But the, the, the church is an, is an image of Christ on multiple levels, and some of them are going to be hard concepts for people to understand, uh, and some are very simple. But going back to uh, even early Christian times, the notion of geometry— was highly symbolic of things that were uh, tangible and of the earth and things that were uh, revelatory of, of heavenly ideas. And so geometries had relationships to our spiritual life. Uh, the circle, for instance, has an infinite number of sides, and from antiquity it was seen as being the perfect shape. And it's mentioned also in the Old Testament, God instructs that the Holy of Holies be so many cubits wide by so many cubits tall by so many cubits long, which actually turned out to be a perfect cube. And a perfect cube ha- uh, contains in it, inscribed in it, a perfect sphere. And a perfect sphere is the Godhead, symbolically. So God instructed the temple in Jerusalem to be designed to contain him, the cube containing the Godhead in the Holy of Holies. That's an example of what I would say is abstract geometry having incredible meaning for ancient people and then on into the Christian period. By the time you get to the Incarnation, the concept of that cube and that sphere get perfected in Christ, because he is God and man. And uh, that dual nature is revealed in the sphere and the cube, because a square has four sides, and it usually represents things of the earth, the four seasons, the four elements, the four cardinal directions, um, and so on. Whereas the circle is infinite, it's a symbol of Godhead, so the two of them combined, <laughs> holy moly, is an image of Christ. I might, I might need to go get a shot of whiskey after that <laughs> statement. I'll, I'll be back. Whiskey is probably what would do me good right about now. I'm just saying. That's it. <laughs> well, that's one example of how you can take a biblical theme, yeah, uh, where God instructs Solomon. Or really, David. He instructs David, you know, on the building of the, the holy of holies, and and I'll mention to my seminarians uh, in the class, why would God, why would God give out numbers? What what's so important about the size of the walls of the temple? Well, the more you look into it, the more you realize that there's a purpose for all of these numbers. And now we're talking about sacred architecture, and of course, there are so many typologies. Uh, precursors of Christ, right, in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, figures that foreshadowed him. Well, guess what? There's also architectural figures in the Old Testament that prefigure 
Christ. The union of divinity mm. and humanity. Yeah, that's one. There are many others. True. You can talk to the college guys and <laughs> yeah, well. get more of them, but I don't want to... I refuse to talk to the college guys about <laughs> anything. <laughs> Anyways. So churches are, they're sacramentals, they're sacred spaces, so that they, by entering a church, you enter into a different kind of space. They are images of Christ in many ways. In many ways. Um, one of those being with the geometry that are used to construct them and the space that we enter into. And they serve a purpose, which is to worship God, right? I mean, I remember when in the spirit of the liturgy, when uh, Joseph Ratzinger talks about the point of the sacred space, it's precisely that. What makes that different than a Wendy's or an Empire State Building is precisely that its whole purpose is different, qualitatively, as you said, different, substantially different. Yeah, and, and there are rules for how to build sacred architecture. Mm -hmm. And those rules uh, come from classical antiquity. A lot of them come from classical antiquity. And they were perfected or uh, they were Christianized. They were baptized and perfected mm. in the church. Uh, so the ancients, of course, recognized the beauty of the human body. Yeah. They didn't think about it in terms of being an image of God. Right. But they did recognize it as being beautiful. And they measured it and they studied the proportions and they based their classical architecture, much of it, on the human form uh, for multiple purposes, including their building of their temples. And who was the perfect human being but Christ? And he comes to us in the incarnation as one of us, thereby informing us that the human form, in all of its beauty, in all of its wonderful proportions— is now redeemed, now has a chance to be part of the heavenly realm in the beatific vision. And therefore, all that information that we received from the ancients, it's almost like it gets, like a light comes on from within it. Mm. And now it's transformed because of Christ. So what do they do? What do the early Christians do? What do the, particularly the Gothic and Renaissance periods in different ways? Mm -hmm. They take this information and they just run with it. So that Christian buildings become uh, a combination of all of these ways that a building is an image of Christ. And he became human in order to take on our sins and die for us and and then to uh, redeem this this form, which is our, was made beautiful um, from the beginning uh, in God's image. So you can go in circles with that, uh, but you can also see it as a spring point for, for instance, the scholastic thinkers in the Middle Ages to go to level after level of, you know, investigation and study into the meaning of the church. What does it mean in light of Christ's incarnation mm. um, and in light of the ancients? The other, the other thing I, I would mention about the meaning, the meaning of the church is the image of Christ is that uh, as I kind of touched on at the beginning, when you enter into the church, uh, the baptistry was usually either outside in its own building in early Christianity, and you would be baptized, and then you entered into the church. What is it when you are baptized? What is happening? 
you are taking on the life of Christ. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You have said that you want to be like Christ. And so there's another image of Christ. You being baptized in this baptistry. And then what happens? You go into the church and you get to take part in these glorious mysteries, uh, the liturgy. And what is happening in the nave of the church? You are learning how to live your life as Christ. Right? Yeah. Stations of the cross. Mm. Image of Christ. Okay? The saints that are your inspiration with all their shrines and side altars and whatever is there. They were images of Christ. Where is all this going? The nave is directional. It's leading you, or it's supposed to be directional. Should be. <laughs> and it's leading you towards the New Jerusalem. It's leading you towards the Garden of Eden. It's, it's leading you towards the second coming. The Paschal mystery. Mm-hmm. And so that church nave, the Navus ship that you're on, is leading you to uh, your true home, which is in heaven. And that's what you see in the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is this image of the new Jerusalem, the new Garden of Eden, the second coming of Christ. And I'd love to spend more time just talking about the richness of that uh, because the apse is is an image of the cave of Bethlehem and you have Mary and Joseph standing either side of the creche, which is the altar, uh, and the tabernacle, which is Mary because she carried Christ in in her womb. There are so many symbols. There's so much meaning in the traditional form of the church that says this is all the image of Christ. The altar is an image of Christ. The the baldachin is an image of his kingship. It's Mm -hmm. also an image of Mary. Um, In plan, the apse is an image of his head and the transepts his arms. There are churches in the world that have five domes in a Greek cross shape, and they represent the five wounds of Mm. Christ. So those are just a couple of examples of how many levels the church building is supposed to be the image of Christ. And in turn, in a a sense, uh, an image of what we're supposed to be um, doing to be our own images of Christ in the the world. Which is, if I understand you correctly, as human beings, we experience the world in a particular way through our senses, through our reason, through our will. And we're capable of that in a unique way. And the church should help us engage with our humanity in a certain way at its fullest level. I mean, that's the, that's the idea, right? Is that in worship to God, we're fully engaged um, in the one who fully is, right? And so, they're just kind of drawn into, again, the sacred reality, right? Outside of just the physical, we're, ca- we're called into this sacred, the sacramental reality that um, our Lord himself took upon, which is he took upon humanity and divinity coming together in his person, and man in his humanity is called to join himself to the divinity of Christ. And the church enables and fosters that. I mean, right, and this is this is really beautiful because then that also points to the fact of the corners and the wood and the stone and the pews and the weird carpet that sometimes needs to get ripped out and sometimes needs to be moved to other places and the crosses, those things aren't just arbitrary designs. Those things are actually are there to aid us in this orientation towards God the Father. That, that is precisely what the church's, 
the church building's role is. It because it is the image of Christ, it is there to show you how to get to heaven. It's there to show you how to live your Christian life. Mm-hmm. The building from the proportions of the columns to the plan layout of the space to the furnishings, the altar, the shrines, the domes, the windows that are telling the story of Christ. There's another one, mm-hmm. right? The stained glass windows are supposed to tell the story of salvation, the story of Christ. It's all an image of Christ. So yes, the building is assisting you or should be assisting you in helping you get to heaven and not just a space to go in once a week so you can get communion yeah. and then go home, right? It's a space that is supposed to move you because you see Christ in everything in that church, not just at the altar, but everywhere. I'm, I'm struck by, so I remember reading and hearing and learning throughout the course of my life that the Old Testament, the temple in the Old Testament was symbolic and modeled after the Garden of Eden. And that um, basically the temple, which was seen to be God's dwelling place on earth, was thought of as being precisely that, like another Eden, like a new, like another sanctuary here in this world. And that the the priest, even his vestments, the the pattern and the design on his vestments evoked this imagery of the Garden of Eden. And so the priest in himself was like a microcosm of of the temple, which was itself the dwelling place of God, right? And so, um, and of course, all of this, listening to you, Professor, talk about this principle of continuity and and um, like completion in Christ, I feel like the same exact pattern is present. So the church, you're saying, is Christ in a way. It's the temple. And we go, we as small temples of the Holy Spirit ourselves, we enter into the church and through our experience of this temple of which we are a part, we are instructed. We learn how to be other Christ's, how to be temples ourselves. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. You know, I was recently... It's pretty sweet, dude. I think this, I think this summer... <laughs> which, which is why I have to say, it's not, it's not just like... It's not just like a... It's not just cute that it's symbolic. It's not just like this thing that's fun that we like to do oh, and point out nice like green. That's like, a nice or piece like of wood. oh these symbols are nice. So that's that's fun. It's like no, like the symbols are communicating reality to us exactly. And mm. it's not just symbols. Yeah, right. it's the whole being of the church. Yeah. it's everything in that building. Um, which is why when you go to a dedication ceremony for a church, it's so moving and beautiful because the church is being in a sense, confirmed. <laughs> the bishop goes around and puts oil. Oil, yeah, that's right. On either the four or twelve, depending, you know, mm-hmm. on the preference of the bishop, <laughs> you know, on these on these places, the church is being confirmed. It is a member of the community, mm. and it's also a reminder that, conversely, we should see Christ in everyone. Because the church built, if the church building is another member of our church community, which it is, and there's lots of personifications that happen about the church building, mm. in, a, in a sense, now we're open to seeing Christ in everyone. I was recently um, exposed to the movie The Agony and the Ecstasy. Have you seen that movie? It's uh, the, about Michelangelo's yeah, life. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. Yeah, um, yeah great it, book turned into a movie. Okay, yeah. yeah, so it's a book turned into a movie, and I watched the the version that came out in 1965, and then I watched a new one about Michelangelo's life. But all that to say, I was deeply moved 
by the relationship between Pope Julius and Michelangelo and kind of how he was drawn out of himself to, to be invested in, in the Sistine Chapel and the tomb of Pope Julius, all this stuff. One of, the, one of the scenes that struck me particularly about that is when he was painting the Sistine Chapel and he was kind of, the whole movie itself was actually kind of him dealing with the fact that God is, God is challenging him to be submissive to the will, to his will through creating this piece of art in you know this our sacred architecture through painting in this in this great uh this great piece of piece of you know, this great temple um one of the, the one of the scenes that moved me was when he was by himself in the chapel and the only one who understood the reality he was trying to portray was the pope the pope had almost kind of abused him in the sense of like he wasn't paying him probably what michelangelo thought he deserved he wasn't given the proper food that he probably deserved because pope julius was too busy at war but Pope Julius was the only one out of everybody who stopped and recognized what was happening in this sacred space. The only one. And Michelangelo was like by himself, kind of crying, laying down, like why nobody cares. They want to strip my money away from this. They want to strip my food. They want to strip my, my, you know, my relationships, everything, just so I can finish this freaking building. And Pope Julius, in a moment of Michelangelo's despair, is like inspiring him and telling him thank you. for. It's not just doing. a building. It's not just a building. It's much more than what's going on here. And guess what, Michelangelo? You're being converted in that. Right? Mm. So anyway, just a point I did just to draw out this point. Professor, what happens when our churches aren't beautiful? When our churches don't? As many of them, unfortunately, I think, because of probably the um, takeover, takeover of these ideologies that you've alluded to um, in modern architecture, what, what, what do we lose when we, when we don't get to experience this? And I say this because hopefully everyone, all of our listeners have had the experience of walking into a gorgeous cathedral of some kind in their life and just having their hearts and minds immediately raised to heaven. It does, it changes you, it, it affects you. So, um, yeah, I guess, could you comment on the, the way you see things now, how you understand your mission as a, and in terms of the current state of affairs of architecture and, America especially, but I don't know. Any thoughts you have on that? It's it's a difficult subject. It's it's dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still, I think, discovering the best way to, to deal with a, a lot of the ugliness that has been handed down to us from, you know, our recent ancestors. And I think the best way to approach it is to think of these buildings uh, as a member of the community Hmm. that have defects. Like all of us. Right. When When I go into a church, and I work on a lot of these churches where they have defects, and it's, it's not that the building doesn't have the image of Christ somewhere there. I look for that. And then I try to think of ways that will help to bring that out even more. Mm. Knowing that this is a building that may never be able to get to the level of, you know, some of the greater one, greater uh, churches of the world. And that doesn't matter. But if you think about it as an individual, a member of the community that has defects, how do you treat those people in your community that you know have defects? Hmm. Sinful defects, maybe. Um, and you think, 
I'm going to treat them just like I treat every other member of this community. With more attention. And love. Yeah. And so I go into churches and the pastor says to me, you know, Bill, I've got this horrible church and is there anything we can do? And I come in and the only time that I really feel that um, these buildings need to be replaced is when there are um, like life-threatening things. Okay. Right. Like structurally. Structurally. Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, there's, there's, there's the cost to repair is never going to fly with the, the ordinary or the diocese yeah. know, building department. Or, and so I say, look, uh, or there's a, a fire that damaged it beyond control and we really mm. need to rebuild. Mm-hmm. But most of the projects where the priest, the pastor or the bishop says to me, um, is there anything we can do? And I, I'll, I usually say yes, there is. Um, and then I go through, and with the eyes uh, that have been studying this for you know thirty years, thirty plus years, I I go in and and I'm able to uh, really express to the priest, the the bishop, the community what I think needs to be the main focus. A lot of times with the with modern churches that are that have very little image of Christ except for maybe the altar, right? Mm-hmm. So the altar is the image of Christ. There's nothing else in this space that has any reference to our wonderful patrimony and and also this beautiful sim- sim- symbolism and meaning, rich meaning. Uh, and so we concentrate on the sanctuary, especially in big open spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, churches that are just blank boxes. Uh, we'll concentrate on the sanctuary and try to make it as beautiful as possible. Because what happens during the mass, the people are concentrated on the sanctuary. Yeah. And if the mass is beautiful and if the setting for the mass is beautiful, then all that stuff around them that doesn't have any meaning is just going to fade away. Mm. Except for the kids who are, you know, looking for something to look at and, but you you have to take it one step at a time. That's true. Yeah. But I think you need to look at a lot of these churches with this sense of it being a member of the community and that you need to treat it with love. Um, yes, there are, there are times when it, it, it doesn't work. Uh, there's no language there that can be worked with. And the priest says, I just don't have the money to build a new church. What do you, what do you do? You do, you do the best you can. Yeah. But you, you, I think the the approach is the most important thing here is that this was a building dedicated to God. It was meant to be an image of Christ. It went through the rites of being an image of Christ and being, you know, confirmed by the bishop. It was also built by these ancestors who sweated to build this thing. Um, and even if it didn't, you know, uh, reflect the image of Christ, even if the architect or even the bishop, God forbid, you know, had an, had an idea to make this church a, an image of a modern ideology, like some kind of modernism. Um, sometimes it's almost like being a parent. You see your rebel children uh, or your, your relatives, your brothers and sisters, and you know that people go through these phases. Yeah. Well, the church has been through 
multiple phases like this, but it doesn't mean that you throw everything out, right? Mm. You, you, you have to be able to step back uh, with wisdom and maturity and start and just try to use prayer and discussion and listening to people to understand what the best next steps are. It's a very difficult uh, subject. It's, it's very difficult to, um, especially because churches are treated like members of the community by the people that built them. Yeah. Yeah. And by the people who engage in their life. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's been my experience that sometimes some priests have had a lot of pushback when they try to move things around, even just basic things like the tabernacle or the cross or the altar. Let's put some candles up. Let's bring the bells back. Let's bring this painting or that painting. It's not an easy thing, but I think part and partial because their sensitivity is such that they do see maybe their church as their home in a certain way. Oh, yeah, to, for to sure. To go in there and change that statue or that painting is is to touch something that's that's theirs and that they rightfully perceive as their own. But I that approach, Professor, is it's a lot like God's dealing with us, you know, like he sees us and we have, we're messed up, but he just doesn't decide to destroy us and start like he, he redeems us, right? He, he takes what's good and he um, transforms it into something even more beautiful. Yeah, not, not to get too abstract here, but no, do it. Do <laughs> you know how abstract we, we get my, so abstract sometimes. <laughs> my thesis when I was at Notre Dame was uh, it was to build a new oratory for the oratorians in the city of Chicago. Hmm. And it was going to be at the juncture between the financial district and the theater district and the shopping district. And uh, which one did I miss out on the governmental district? But (laughs) it was at the core of the city. Okay. And one of the concepts that I was struggling with in my thesis was Chicago's was the home of modernism in the U.S. You know, this ideology that architecture should be based on mass production and an industrial aesthetic mm. of machine-made building parts. And, and we've lost any connection to architecture that has meaning that's anthropomorphic or Christian in any way. That was all out the window, even mm. starting in the 1920s. Actually, even earlier. But my goal... <laughs> In my thesis was to to re replant Christianity in the heart of Chicago. I mean, this is a thesis again. Mm-hmm. Remember, I mean, there there are churches in Chicago, yeah, 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 yeah. but yeah. but the theme was how do we replant this heart of Christ in the middle of the city when it's all these modern buildings around? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't just come in with this project and ignore all these modern buildings. And I thought, I'm going to write a chapter on how to take the precepts of modernism, which were very dramatic and very anti-traditional, anti-Christian. Anti-institutional in general. And I was going to reinterpret them or turn them around. Hmm. And in a way, this is kind of the way, as a priest, you're going to deal with a lot of people, right? In confessional, it's like, how do... yeah. How do I take the good qualities or just who this person is that I've come to know through spiritual direction? And how am I going to use that, use their personality, use who they are to help them turn around? Mm. They're going to have to take on Christ. They're going to have to make transformations. Granted. Yeah. But at the same time, you're also sensitive to who these, who these people are, where they come from. 
and in a sense, we need to, I think, approach the world that way and, and architecture to, to re-grow uh, beauty mm. in our world. Um, it's not about coming in and laying a heavy hand, right? It's about this quiet mm-hmm. uh, planting uh, and being able to take people and lift them up. Yeah. Our world today is filled with people who tear you down. You know, bloggers, you know, internet, social media. Podcasts. Not <laughs> ours, but somebody's, I'm sure. <laughs> and so how do we create an architecture that uh, parallels what you seminarians are learning? And that is how do you lift people up and help them to see Christ and to become an image of Christ again? Mm. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not an easy task, as you know, as seminarians. Yeah, yeah. it's... I had an interesting observation where one of my friends that's not even Christian, and I would dare say even anti-Christian, he was in Europe, and I saw him post on his social media that he was visiting a church. And you get this sense all the time. When people go to these, New York City, St. Patrick's comes to mind, for example. They go to New York City, and they want to go to St. Patrick's. Even though they may not be Catholic, even though they may not be practicing their faith, they have nothing to do with the church. But for some reason, this is the one of the tourist places they want to go visit. I wonder if, because they see it as a source of hope, as you're pointing to, they see this place as kind of one of the few places around that they're like, you know what? There's something different about this. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I want to experience somebody. Someone, maybe. And if somebody was able to explain to them how St. Patrick's Cathedral is an image of Christ, they might convert. They might. By using the architecture. Yeah, it's like, hey, you're drawn to this, and you might not even know why, but let me reveal to you that the reason you're drawn to this is because Christ, who created you and loves you and wants to redeem you, is drawing you here. Mm -hmm. And he's present, not just in the tabernacle, not just in the consecration of this building, but in everything you see inside professor okay maybe by way of conclusion um i'm really curious what's your what's your favorite what's the most beautiful church in the world in your opinion and why and then what's the what's your favorite um what's the the church or renovation that you've done in your professional career that you're most that you look at and you're like I'm the most proud of that. And obviously Walmart is the most beautiful building in the world. So aside from Walmart, do tell. Oh, those are really hard. Um, I think trying to decide which church is your favorite is kind of like looking at your siblings and saying, which is your favorite? Well, I know exactly which one's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Or, or, or parent, you know, when you get to be old enough, but, I, I have multiple churches that have been inspirations for me, and some are personal because mm-hmm. of my history. Yeah, um, and some are uh, some are just beautiful be- because they are, the proportions are so lovely. Um, but I would say that uh, there's a church by uh, Bernini that's in Rome called Al Quirinale, which means on the Quirinal Hill. Um, which is where the presidential palace is. Mm. It's an oval-shaped church that was built in the late or mid-1600s. And it was a Jesuit, I think it was the Jesuit novitiate for some time. Uh, but you go in and, and it's amazing to think that they could u- make marble move and undulate 
in all kinds of sweeping forms uh, the way that they did in that church. And it's very prayerful. It's very moving. Mm. Your eye is lifted, you know, through the sanctuary up to a cupola and the whole room just seems to be moving almost like it's a piece of music. Hmm. Um, and yeah. what was the other question? You're proudest. You're the, the church that you've done that you're the favorites that you're the most proud of. That's also like choosing between siblings. <laughs> um, I would say that my career is young and, and there's a lot to come. Uh, and I, I have, a, I have a number of, uh, churches that I, you know, that I, I'm very proud of. Um, but I, I think the best is yet to come. I, I hope that uh, I'll continue to make make more beautiful, beautiful churches for the for the people of God. That yeah. is exciting to us um, as future priests. But I guess while we're here, um, if people listeners are interested in seeing some of the work that uh, Professor Hire has done, they can go to. Uh, WilliamHireArchitect.com. Is that right? Just HireArchitect.com. HireArchitect.com. We'll link that below. We'll let y'all know, give you the right links to that situation. Uh huh. Um, to his biography, who he is, his work, his portfolio, which I was very impressed by. Again, preparing for this episode just to see what you've done. It, it really is impressive. You've done a lot in different parts of, of the country. Um, and uh, it's been a privilege to talk to you. I really, really wish we had another hour or t- or 10 <laughs> to just pick your brain because uh, me speaking personally here uh professor you know it's been art and architecture and music have always beauty in general has always been kind of a great source of of joy and hope for me in my own life and as i've grown in the catholic tradition and my own journey journey towards a priesthood i see them as deeply deeply life-giving and essential to the Christian journey, as you said, because architecture particularly is salvific in the same way that I think a music piece would be or beautiful art is. And um, thank you for your work. Thank mm-hmm. you for what you do, your service to the church through your work and your dedication. And thanks be to God that he pulled you out and into this field um, that we have people like you in, in the field. And, and I look forward to you know, whatever advice you may give me as a God willing, a future priest or yourself helping maybe lead a project. And uh, to any of our listeners, please consider him in your future works, whether you're a priest or a parishioner, you know, whispering your priest ear, hey, check this guy out, you know? So that's just my personal note to you. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, I just, um, it's clear that this is not just a career, it's a vocation. Yeah. Um, and I'm so grateful that you responded to God's call in your life to to serve the church in this way because... We at our seminary have gotten to be uh, personal beneficiaries of some of your work. We, uh, in in my diocese, you've done some work, and I've I'm just so grateful for the beauty that uh, that you've planted here. So thank you for that. Thank Do you. you have any final remarks before we close this episode? Out? Message for our audience, for our listeners. Yeah, one thing that I think is important for listeners to understand. Uh, and I want to portray this in the most positive way, is that the Holy Spirit is looking to come into every person's heart. And Christ is looking to enter into every person's heart. And he does that primarily through the image and through the senses. The image, you know, smell and sight. And if you look around the world today, uh, that is all being shut down 
the image that we talked about in this episode, the image of Christ, has been, has been replaced with an inundation of images that are meaningless and dangerous all over social media, the internet, mm-hmm. in our children's lives, at school, it doesn't matter. It's just everything is an image. Uh, we're bombarded with images. At the same time, the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to us in silence, and we're being inundated with sounds and noise constantly. Mm. Uh, you know, from being able to put on your playlists uh, from the from your favorite music stations and Spotify to having to have the earbuds in when you're working out to having you know <laughs> podcasts <laughs> playing when you're in the car and. So the Holy Spirit, uh, God's ability to reach the hearts of people is being shortcut by all of these ways that the evil one is taking over mm. these avenues that God would use. Now, of course, God is going to break through all of that, because, but we have this freedom to block it out, mm. and we can do it in so many ways now. And this is painful because... Architecture and music, as you were talking about, were main avenues for inspiration, mm. for people to convert, to change, have changes of heart, to go to confession, to fall in love with God again. And you can see that the evil one is trying to block that. So I would say for listeners, if you want to experience the beauty again that you take out the earbuds and you walk into a beautiful church and listen to that silence and just feel his presence. Well said. Very well said. Guys, thank y'all for tuning into this episode of Logos Podcast. We hope y'all learned something. I know y'all did. I certainly did. Joey also did, and I can speak for a fact that he did. And even if you're listening to Logos, take the earbuds out. We don't care if it's between us well, and the church. But, but also do rate our show <laughs> and go to YouTube and all of these things. Guys, thank you for tuning in. We hope that y'all grew closer to Logos Jesus Christ through this particular practice that Professor um, Hire does. Thank you for coming on. Professor. Thank you. Yeah, and thank as, you. Thanks so much. And as always, guys, God bless. <laughs>